As we're continuing to understand the unfolding of this greatest story, the story of deliverance and redemption, we want to all know God more deeply and more intimately. And so today I hope it will, this will help you do that. And, and it's going to, we're going to do it with a familiar story. So it's really easy, I think, maybe for you to say, well, I know this story, what's he going to say? Um, I hope you're going to be able to see some things that you haven't seen before. I certainly have as I've, I've prepared. Nanette and I like to travel a lot. Many of you know that. We like to see various places, go to various sites. We love to see the wonders of God's creation and also the wonders of human creation. Like many of you, we've been to Biltmore. It's on the Rhine in Germany. There's this beautiful uh, building that a lot of people don't know in a town called Würzburg, Germany, called the Residence. It's just incredible. Uh, Neuschwanstein, we've been to that. That's the crazy King Ludwig's castle that Disneyland or well, one of those castles. I mean, Disney's castle is based on. We've been to the Catherine Palace outside St. Petersburg, Russia, and others. And, and when we see these castles and these great buildings and homes, uh, we, like most people, do what I am sure the present owners want us to do. We are likely to identify with and imagine being the king or the queen or some other wealthy, important person who has lived there in the past. At the very least, we would imagine that we've been invited to that home to stay for the summer or from time to time for big events. Statistically speaking, that ain't very likely, right? We very likely would have been one of the people who lived in poverty around those great and lavish buildings. Maybe, maybe we would have been fortunate enough to work there, but even those odds would have been pretty long. We most likely would have been on the outside looking in, wondering what life was like on the inside. And when we read the Bible, we tend to do the same thing. We read these great stories of the heroes of the faith, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we think we're supposed to identify with them and be like them and imagine being the hero like David or the leader like Moses or the prophet like Isaiah or Jeremiah. Nah, not very likely. The reality is that we would most likely not have been the hero or the leader or the prophet. We would have been one of the cowards. We would have been one of the killers of the prophets. And what do we do with that realization? What, do we, what, what does God do with that realization? So today I want to talk about the fact that frankly... We're the fearful cowards. And I want to speak on how to get courage. I'm going to work through the whole narrative today. You heard the first part and the last part uh, today. We couldn't read the whole thing. Um, it's not as long as Harrison had to try to plow through last week, but uh, that, was, uh, that was very admirable what he did last week. That was a huge, huge passage. But... Um, this narrative is really unlike almost anything in the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, it's got immense detail. For a story from the Bible, armor. The number of cheeses and loaves of bread that David takes with him. Uh, David's acquisition of five sling stones. And lots more detail. It's, it's just unlike almost anything else. It's got these extended verbal passages, long quotes by both David and his nemesis, Goliath. And it just builds with suspense. And, you know, frankly, we have to say it has an unexpected ending. 
It's really almost unlike any other historical biblical text. It is one reason that this narrative has such power. We just love reading it. I do, even when we know the ending. The narrative starts with the Philistines and the Israelites gathered for battle. They're on opposite sides of a valley. They're up on a mountain on each side. Close combat going uphill, both in ancient times and today, is pretty difficult. Out comes Goliath. Listen to this description. I'm going to read it again. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, and he was clothed with scale armor, which weighed 5,000 shekels of bronze. He also had bronze greaves on his legs and a bronze javelin slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the head of his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. His shield carrier also walked before him. What is six cubits and a span? It's about eight to nine feet. We should pause for a moment and think about that. Okay, I'm six feet and about a half an inch. Uh, at least I was. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what I've gotten down to as I've gotten a little older. Now, I went to North Carolina State in 1974. There was a basketball player there named Tommy Burleson. Seven foot four. I have stood next to Tommy Burleson. It's amazing. He is, I mean, you just, I mean, it's incredible that a human being could be that tall. Goliath is one to two feet taller than Tommy Burleson, and a whole lot broader. I mean, for those of you who remember Tommy, he was about this big, you know. But, I mean, you know, this would have been terrifying. And remember, people in that age were smaller than we are now. Saul in uh, 1 Samuel 9 is described as being from his shoulders and up taller than any other people. Saul was already a head above everybody else. So most people in the Israelite army would have been closer to five feet tall than six feet tall And Goliath is eight or nine feet tall. It's little wonder that the Bible storybook says, God's people froze with fear. Their eyes glazed over and they turned deathly pale. I'll say. Now, Goliath invites them to this thing called representational combat. And he has to explain it to them. Uh, He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, starting in verse 8, and said to them, why do you come out? to draw up in battle array. Am I not the Philistine and you servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we might fight together. So this idea of representational combat was apparently known to the Philistines, but not so well known to the Israelites. So Goliath was nice enough to explain it to him. And of course, the interesting part, as we know the whole story, is the Philistines did not keep their end of the bargain, did they? Uh, After the defeat of Goliath, uh, they ran off and came back to, um, uh, not as servants of the Israelites, we'll say. Now, the narrative turns to David. His eldest three brothers are in the army. He he takes supplies to them. Now, this may sound a little odd, but families had to help support the army in the field in the day of Israel. They were not paid as soldiers. If they won, they would get a portion of the plunder. And if they didn't, well, they were dead or slaves, so it didn't really matter what they got paid. David runs up to the battle line to check on his brothers, to greet them, the text says. And about that time, Goliath comes out again and taunts the Israelites. David hears the taunts, and he sees the fear in the army around him and in his brothers. 
David asked, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? You just got to love David, right? He's awesome. And there's this odd interaction, if you remember the whole story, with his eldest brother Eliab. We didn't read it this morning. It says that Eliab was angry at David. And we're not given the reason for the anger. It seems out of place, but it was probably some misplaced fear that Eliab felt as he looked at Goliath and wondered if God was actually going to deliver them from this horrible giant. This confirms what happened in 1 Samuel 16. When God revealed to Samuel that he should anoint David as the next king, Samuel first sees Eliab. And for that matter, he sees all his other brothers. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, When they entered, he looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not man, so God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David is God's man. So in our story, it's not long, of course, before David ends up before Saul and volunteers to take on Goliath. No surprise here. Saul is somewhat skeptical, all right? But David's insistent and tells Saul of his killing of a lion and a bear while he is shepherding his father's sheep. And then there's that somewhat humorous part of the passage where David tries to put on Saul's armor. You know, it's, you just visualize that. You know, David wasn't uh, big. Saul's already bigger than everybody else. He puts on the armor. It doesn't fit. David can't use him. He's going to use his weapon of choice, a sling, and some smooth stones. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in his pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Now, these aren't little pebbles. You know, when I was growing up, I had, had a slingshot. We all did, right? Little rocks. Uh, probably these were stones maybe close to the size of a fist. All right, so... You hit the target, they're going to do some damage. Things begin to move rapidly as fearless David now goes out to meet Goliath. The Philistine taunts David, and David replies, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down, remove your head from you, and I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And they approach each other. The narrative actually says David ran at him. Uh, just compare that to what the army was doing, kind of standing there, uh, cowardly in fear. And you know what happens? David fells Goliath with a stone. David uses Goliath's own sword to cut off Goliath's head, and the Philistine army breaks from the field. Verse 52, the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sharim, even to Gath and Ekron. What a great story, right? Never fails to thrill you. It's just awesome. Now, the natural tendency as we read the story of David is to think that we would be or should be like David, as I said earlier, just like Nanette and I would imagine that we would be royalty and have great wealth as we visited those sites. We all think that we're supposed to be like David, copy and emulate David's faith 
and boldness and actions and everything will be good. And there could be some truth to that, but the reality is that we're not David. We're the cowards. We would not be David. We would be one of the fearful, trembling, anxious Israelites looking across the field at Goliath. Why am I saying that? Well, experts tell us, best they can tell, modern people have more anxiety and fearfulness than almost any other generation in history. We're full of anxiety. We're full of worry about this and that. You're anxious. I'm anxious. My wife would tell you I just came through a month of horrible anxiety. And while it's possible to attribute some of this anxiety to the COVID pandemic, the reality is I could have made the very same statement in December of 2019 before any of us even had heard the word COVID. Modern people have more anxiety and fearfulness than almost any other generation in history. Yet we live in one of the safest human worlds that has ever existed. This is especially true in the Western world, but it's actually equally true in the third world. Even the third world is a safer place to live than it has ever been, probably ever in history. About three weeks ago, the New York Times published a piece that indicated that by most measures, the world is safer and better off now than ever. The author makes a compelling case that the world is not only better than it was in past centuries, it's better off than it's been in the last 50 years. That's my lifetime. Despite COVID, the world is actually less death genocides and mass atrocities in the last 10 years than in the previous 50 years. Though you might not think that when you watch the news. Life expectancy is actually up although COVID did flatten it slightly for a year or two. In the U.S., child mortality is, this isn't remarkable to me, it's down from 46%, that's 460 per thousand in 1800, to 100 in 1,000 in 1930. So in 1930, 10% of children died in the first five years of life to 35 per thousand in the year I was born, I didn't know it was so dangerous, to seven per thousand today. I mean, that's an incredible record. Hunger, while we all know it's tragically a problem in our community, and that's why we do out of the garden, is declining worldwide. Extreme poverty is declining worldwide. Literacy and standards of living are up. All right, now, so if our world and society is so much safer than it was before, why are you and I so fearful? Why are you and I so anxious? Well, part of it is doubtless the real-time news and social media feeds to which many of us attend, and frankly, to which many of us are somewhat addicted. Uh, but there has to be something more going on. And Tim Keller was helpful for me here because he cited a psychologist named Alfred Adler, who once said, if you want to know what your heart really wants in life, what your heart really is hoping in, what your real meaning in life is, what your main motivational drive is, look at your biggest nightmares, your greatest fears, and your greatest nightmares. So I want you to consider right now, what do you fear? What are your nightmares? It could be the loss of a loved one. Maybe it's the loss of a child. It may be fear of hungry, hunger. I don't know your ability to pay for food. It may be your own mortality, the fact that you will one day die. 
But I suspect for many of us in this room, certainly for me, there are many fears, many things about which I'm anxious, many things which give me nightmares that are beyond these things. And to name a big one, I think many of us fear humiliation and shame. What if others knew what I was really like? What if others knew what I had done? What do you fear? Ponder that just for a moment. Here's the problem with fear. Fear is the opposite of love. You may think hate is the opposite of love. It is. But the most common driver of hate is fear. Hate, or a complete lack of love, is actually a symptom. The root cause is fear. The Apostle John writes, 1 John 4.18, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And the converse is true as well. Fear opposes and can sometimes drive out love. Why is that? Because fear causes us to be self-absorbed. It causes us to be consumed with ourselves, unable to think about and love those around us perfectly or even adequately. The destruction is widespread. In our text today, Eliab's disproportionate angry response to his brother David as I've said, is most likely due to this overwhelming fear he felt as he looked out at the giant. And we see the destruction of fear around us every day. Some people fear financial failure. The result is they work ceaselessly. Their family suffers. They may be well off, but the family unit is incomplete and chaotic. Another result of financial failure, uh, sorry, a fear of financial failure is a lack of generosity. And that leads to suffering way beyond the family. Some people fear losing or not gaining people's approval. They will do all types of wrong things depending on the relationship. And while they may get the approval in that relationship, those actions leave themselves and other relationships untended to, damaged, possibly destroyed. Some people, I'd actually say most people, fear others who are different than themselves. And we see the ravages wrought upon people of color and immigrants in our cultural history and continuing even today. We're not the heroes and the leaders and the prophets. We are the fearful. We are the cowards. We are standing on the edge of the battlefield like the Israelites, paralyzed, frozen with fear. Our eyes are glazed over. We're consumed by our fear and anxiety-driven nightmares. Unable to do the one thing that Jesus commands us to do, to love one another, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, you might think that here I'm going to just say what you've heard in other sermons about David and Goliath. If you'll just have faith like David, God will bless you. You'll have no fears as you face your worst nightmares, and you can love everyone around you perfectly. Uh, But I'm not going to say that. Because first of all, it's not helpful And second of all, that's not the story of the story, that's not the point of the story of David and Goliath. It's not helpful because if I were to say, just have faith like David, it would be like saying, just pull yourselves up by your faith bootstraps and get on with it. It's not helpful because it would be like saying, you just need to be inspired by and copy David, then you can avoid being a coward. 
It's not helpful because really it's a spiritualized version of how the world says you should deal with your fears. On your own. You can hear this in counseling, in numerous counseling type websites. The world says the way to deal with your fears is to relax. Imagine yourself in that fearful situation. Imagine yourself succeeding and enjoy that feeling you have when you go through that exercise. And if you've done this a few times, you can banish those fearful thoughts, have confidence, and move towards your fears. And I'm not telling you that's completely worthless. But telling you that is telling you that you should just have faith like David and God will be there. And you need not fear because you can just trust in yourself and your own abilities. And, of course, if you can't, then you're going to realize it's your own fault. Boy, that's going to give you some more fear and anxiety. None of that's very helpful as we face our fears, is it? But more importantly, much more importantly, telling you that you should just have faith like David is actually missing the whole point of the story. And I have to admit, I have probably missed the whole point of the story of David and Goliath my entire life. The point of the story of David and Goliath is not that we should have the faith of David to win our battles. The point of the story of David and Goliath is that God knows that we are cowardly people fearing failure, humiliation, and death. And God has sent a representative who has won the battle for us. So now we need not fear. And now we can have courage to live and love those around us freely. Maybe I should repeat that. The point of the story of David and Goliath is not that we for us, so we need not fear. And now we can have courage to live and to love those around us freely. So we've already said it. The story of David is the story of representational combat. It is the story of the results of one man's work being imputed to others. David takes the place of the Israelite army, and the result he gets is the result the nation gets. It is imputed to God's people. Does that sound familiar? Suddenly, the Israelites' fear, fears vanish, and they chase the Philistines off the battle. Suddenly, they have courage. Why did they suddenly have the courage to chase after the Philistines? The Philistines are just as well armed as they have been. Goliath's out of the way, but the Philistines are still there. The Israelites had courage because their nightmare was gone. It was not that their troubles were gone. The Philistines were still there, but their nightmare was gone. And you know where I'm going with this. Jesus is our David. He is our representative. He was sent by God the Father to face our worst nightmare. Because our worst nightmare is not financial failure. It is not humiliation and shame before human beings, as powerful as that is. It is not even death. Our worst nightmare is or should be standing before a holy God in our humiliating and shameful sin, richly deserving nothing but His displeasure, wrath, and eternal punishment. And let me add, if this is not your worst nightmare, then either your view of God is way too small or your view of yourself is way too big. The reality is that our worst nightmare is not financial failure. It's not that others think poorly. It's not that loved ones die. It's not even that we die. Our worst nightmare is not Goliath standing across from us. Our worst nightmare is God, the Holy One, standing 
across from us, holding us to account for all that we have ever thought and done. But Jesus, our representative, had courage and was willing to go to the cross and while on the cross, received the punishment due for all of our sinful thoughts and actions. And therefore, we no longer have to face the nightmare of that same displeasure and wrath. And if our worst nightmare is dispelled, it should help us face our lesser nightmares. Now you might ask, why and how does this help us face our lesser nightmares? How does this give us courage? Well, we're going to look at David for a moment, and then we're going to look at Jesus. David could face Goliath, his nightmare, because he knew the battle was God's battle. Yes, he had faith in God, but more importantly, he knew the God in whom he had faith. And that gave him courage. After recounting his battles with a lion and a bear while shepherding, David tells Saul in verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You have undoubtedly heard it said that it is not the quantity of your faith that matters, but the quality of that in which you place your faith that matters. David didn't have greater faith than the other Israelites. He had her, as our church leaders asked us to do, You may have gotten to the chapter on God's majesty. Uh, And if you haven't read it, you should. If you have, let me remind you that Packer unfolds the many aspects of the creativity, majesty, and almighty power of God. As I read through that again this week, I couldn't help think of the pictures from the Webb telescope, that one of which Harrison showed us last week. All right? A picture, grain of sand up there, that's that's how much of space they were looking at, with thousands of previously unknown galaxies, with millions and billions of previously unknown stars that is unknown to us, but created by and known by God. We need to meditate and dwell on that. We need to believe, actually, we need to believe in the majesty and power of God Almighty, Creator of the heavens and the earth. We need to be like David and know that God, the God of the Bible. And that knowledge will help us dispel the nightmares of our fears and our anxieties. The things that we fear are not going to go away. But in light of the majesty and power of God, we will gain courage and the nightmares will lose their fearsomeness and their power over us. And Jesus, who actually endured the nightmare, how did he do it? How was he so brave and courageous? The author of Hebrews tells us, Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured more pain than we ever will. He endured more shame than we ever will. He endured a death at the hand of God the Father that we will never have to endure because of his actions. How did he do that? Because of the joy set before him. What was the source of the joy? First, it was his knowledge that having endured it, he would return to the perfect unity of the Godhead and sit down at the right hand of the throne of God the Father. But second, it was his knowledge that having endured it, he would have us, his people, those who are called by his name, those who would join him in the words of Revelation 19.9 at the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
So if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a believer, then you should meditate and dwell on the joy we will have in the presence of Jesus who has paid the price for our sins. It will help dispel the nightmares of our fears and our anxieties. The things that we fear are not going to go away. But we will gain courage and the nightmares will lose their fearsomeness and their power over us. As I said at the beginning, when Annette and I travel and see these great places, we have all these great imaginations and think. But here lately, I've actually been thinking more about the fact that I would have been one of the miserable, poverty-stricken people around. Similarly, when we read the story of David and Goliath, we naturally want to imagine ourselves to be David, but I'm beginning to get comfortable with the fact that I would have been one of those cowardly, anxious, fearful Israelite army people. And as I live my life, I recognize that these kinds of fears and anxieties are horribly destructive to me and to my family and to you and to the world around us. The result, if you suffer like that, is that you and I are both unable to love others in our family, in our community, and throughout the world as we should. But God has sent Jesus into representational combat on our behalf, and Jesus has the victory. The Bible storybook says it this way. After recounting the death of Goliath, it reads, The Israelites cheered. God saved his people. David was a hero. Many years later, God would send his people another young hero to fight for them and to save them. But this hero would fight the greatest battle the world has ever known. A true biblical knowledge of God and his power in creating and maintaining the universe. And a knowledge of Jesus and his victorious fight for us should help us deal with the fears and anxieties that create our own. And we need to meditate and be overwhelmed with the joy that is set before us as followers of Jesus. Let's commit to doing that this week. Amen.